Well, good morning. What a, uh, what a privilege to be able to stand up here this morning on the last Sunday of the year and uh, speak to you all, and two days before Christmas. Uh, if you've been around in December, you'll know um, that we've been looking at uh, the book of John 1, and we've been looking at uh, what it means um, that God became a man and stepped into our reality, and what it means uh, that the Word became flesh and was the light that shines in the darkness and that brings true light and life. Uh, and this morning, I'm going to continue in John 1, and I'm going to be zeroing in on uh, verse 29, uh, which really highlights for us the purpose and ultimate outcome of the Word becoming flesh. Um, So at the end of the day, what was the point of it all? So I'll pray and then we'll read the Word together. Lord, we thank you so much uh, for your Word. We thank you um, that you have powerfully revealed yourself to us through your Word and that your Word became flesh, that you have walked among us, that you, God, stepped into our reality into our brokenness uh, and brought true light. We pray, Father, that uh, this morning as we look at your word, um, that you would reveal more of that uh, to us, that you would uh, clarify in our minds and in our hearts what that means and what, uh, what the outcomes of that are, Lord, and fill our hearts with uh, joy and praise of your name uh, at what you have done for us. Amen. All right, we're going to be reading uh, John 1.29 and a couple of verses after that. Uh, and this is a part of John, which is the testimony of John the Baptist about Jesus. So when it says here, he saw Jesus, it's talking about John the Baptist, uh, who's been, just spent the last few verses explaining to Jewish priests um, that he himself is really a nobody, but that he is preparing the way for one far greater than him. Um, that he's preparing the way for the Lord. So from verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So the question we're looking at this morning, uh, what what are the results of the word becoming flesh? What's the result of the incarnation? It's a really big question. Um, And Athanasius of Alexandria, who was a fourth century uh, theologian and church father, who said quite a bit about the divinity of Jesus and the incarnation of Jesus, He said this of the subject, he said, the results of the incarnation of the Savior are such and so many that anyone attempting to enumerate them should be compared to a person looking upon the vastness of the sea and attempting to count its waves. So I guess we have our work cut out for us, um, but we really want to focus on what verse 29 focuses on this morning, which is that the incarnation of Jesus, the eternal Son of God the Father, ultimately brings about the removal of the sin of the world because of who Jesus is and what he goes on to do. And this is why Christmas is an event worth celebrating uh, because whether or not you have loved ones to celebrate with, we can actually all rejoice at Christmas because uh, we're celebrating this moment that God came to the world in the form of a small baby born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago 
um, and uh, to, to, to ultimately bring about the removal of the sin of the world. So it is a hugely significant moment in history. Um, and what John the Baptist says here about Jesus in uh, verse 29, it foreshadows in no uncertain terms uh, what Jesus will go on to do. And he helps us to see and understand who Jesus is and uh, because of that, the astounding implications that his coming into the world carries. So the very first thing uh, that John the Baptist says when he sees Jesus uh, is, behold. And let's just stop for a moment to think about that word, behold. That's a really powerful word. And it's far more powerful than just look or see. Um, and for that reason, we don't use it very much in our everyday lives, do we? It's, um, perhaps you haven't even heard of that word before, I'm not sure, but in any case, uh, it would be a bit odd if we went around talking about beholding things, because it really, you know, it, it calls our undivided attention to something that is truly noteworthy. Um, so it's often used about sort of deeply beautiful, beautiful or amazing things. Like, for example, someone might say, it was a pleasure to behold the beauty of the sunset. So when John sees Jesus here and says, behold, he's actually saying, everyone, stop what you're doing and pay attention to this man. Uh, he's saying, uh, the, one to whom, uh, the one about whom I'm speaking now is truly noteworthy and is truly worthy of, uh, of our attention He's trying to pull our undivided focus towards Jesus. And I don't think we do this very much anymore in our society, um, really kind of stopping and paying attention to things that are going on in the present moment, stopping to smell the roses, if you will. It's, um, I guess, because our lives are so busy and there are so many distractions around us, uh, so many demands on us, we spend a lot of time being unfocused. So we, we might let important or beautiful moments pass us by because we're distracted. And that's the case so much so that there's an entire movement in our culture around uh, mindfulness and around reaching a, a mental state of full awareness of the present moment and what's going on in the here and now and of noticing things that we might not otherwise notice. And the fact that we have movements like that, um, I think, speaks to how difficult it is in our everyday lives to really stop, pay attention, and recognize when there's something truly noteworthy going on before us. Um, and that is what John is actually urging us to do here, to recognize that this is noteworthy, to focus on this, uh, and to respond to it. So when he says, behold, it doesn't sound like a suggestion, it sounds more like a command, and it's, it really demands a response. So as we go through the rest of this um, passage, as we think about what John says about Jesus, can I encourage you to keep thinking in the back of your mind about how you're gonna to respond to this man and how you're gonna um, respond to, to who John says that he is. So please don't see this as just interesting information, but I wanna urge you and I, I pray that God will help you to see this as something that uh, directly impacts you in your life. So what, is, uh, what does John say about this man, Jesus, who we are to behold? Well, the, first, the very first thing he says is that he is the Lamb of God. And I wonder what first comes to mind for you when you hear the phrase, Lamb of God. Um, 
not many people know this, uh, but I'm a huge metal fan, so the, the music genre uh, metal. So one of the first things I think of when I hear Lamb of God is the band Lamb of God, <laughs> which is um, not, a, not a Christian band, by the way, but, um, and I certainly don't endorse the lyrical content in any way. Um, but this drummer is a total weapon, just in case. You know. But I, uh, I digress. Depending, uh, depending on whether or not you're familiar with the Old Testament, um, this may sound like a pretty strange phrase, the Lamb of God. But to the Jews of that time, it would have at least been a phrase that they would recognize. Because what John is doing here uh, is he's referencing Old Testament scriptures to explain the full significance of who Jesus is. So saying that Jesus is the Lamb of, <clears throat> of God is a very theologically packed and meaningful statement. So we actually need to look at a few Old Testament scriptures to understand uh, what it means. And you'll see that it's very clearly a reference to Old Testament sacrifices which were needed to uh, atone for sin or to uh, sort of make amends for sin. So uh, we'll, we'll talk a little more about sin later on and what exactly that means and, and why it's a problem, because I think it's really important that we fully understand that. Uh, but for now, let's turn together to a few of these Old Testament passages. The first uh, example we have is the Passover lamb. And this dates back to the days of Moses written about in Exodus. And if you've been around for our Exodus series, you'll remember that uh, just before the 10th and final plague of God on Egypt, which was the striking down of the firstborn sons of the Egyptians, God instructs the Israelites through Moses to sacrifice a lamb and to paint the doors of their homes with the blood of the lamb. So it says in Exodus 12, then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So the lamb's blood covers the door of each family, allowing God's judgment to pass over them. That's why it's called the Passover lamb. And the blood of God's lamb in this case allows God's people to be spared from his righteous judgment and so to escape death. Then when we move along one book in the Old Testament, we get to Leviticus, which is full of instructions about making sacrifices and offerings for all sorts of different things. Um, and Leviticus 4 specifically talks about sin offerings, uh, which are offerings that are required of God's people to make atonement or make amends for sin, to sort of make things right between uh, sinful people and an unimaginably holy God. Leviticus 4, um, verse 27 to 28, um, shows us this. It says, if any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat 
a female without blemish for his sin which he has committed. And it goes on to say, um, sorry. it goes on to say after this point uh, that the priest, after the sacrifice is made, will make atonement for that person and they will be forgiven. Uh, so the imagery of the Lamb of God also evokes this sin offering uh, by which God's people make atonement for and receive forgiveness for their sins. And the last example I'll mention here, although there are, there are plenty more, uh, is from the book of Isaiah, so quite a bit further on in the Old Testament. And this time it's part of an explicit, really clear foretelling or prophecy of Jesus. Um, so from Isaiah 53, uh, verses five to seven, it says this, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So this is part of a big chunk of Isaiah uh, that's talking about the coming Messiah who we now know to be Jesus. And here it says that this Messiah who uh, is like a lamb being led to the slaughter is wounded for our transgressions and is crushed for our iniquities. And iniquity means sin or wickedness. So the Lord has laid on this Messiah the sin of us all. And these are just a few examples from the Old Testament, like I said. Um, where we hear the phrase Lamb of God or where we uh, hear about these sacrifices made to God. Um, and there, there are plenty more, but when John the Baptist sees Jesus here and says, behold, the Lamb of God, there is so much behind that. Uh, John is saying that Jesus is these things in some way, that he's a fulfillment of these things. So... Um, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament actually helps us to understand this with a little more clarity. So Hebrews explains to us uh, that this Old Testament system, uh, while it was a, a temporary solution and a reminder for sins, uh, it was not actually a permanent solution. And some kind of more perfect sacrifice would be needed to deal in a permanent, decisive way with sin. Um, so we, we read in Hebrews 10, says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the law, these sacrifices in Leviticus, um, that was all but a shadow of what was to come. And sure, they were, like I said, a sort of temporary bandage for sin. Uh, they were a coverage and a reminder, but they never completely removed, completely took away sin a greater sacrifice was needed to deal decisively with sin. 
And you could say that uh, the Old Testament system was sort of symbolizing or pointing forward to what would happen in that future final sacrifice uh, for sin. And John the Baptist is saying, this is happening right now, guys. God has sent his perfect lamb into the world to take away sin once and for all. And Hebrews, uh, later in the same chapter, summarizes it beautifully for us. It says from verse 10, and by that will, it's talking about God's will, by God's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So Jesus was the perfect lamb of God the perfect sacrifice, who could achieve what all the sacrifices before could not. And we can look to Jesus now for full 100% forgiveness of sins, for eternal perfection in the eyes of God. And not because we are now ourselves somehow actually perfect, because we're definitely not, but because somehow, incredibly, the nature of Christ's sacrifice for us is such that his perfection his righteousness is credited to us. And on top of that, those who are being made more and more like him, sorry, those, those of us who trust in him are being made more and more like him all the time. That's what being sanctified means. That was a word we saw back in this passage. So we are increasingly reflecting the perfection that Christ has already earned for us. So hopefully now you can see the richness of what John the Baptist was saying by calling Jesus the Lamb of God uh, and what that would have meant for the people listening to him at the time. But what significance does it have for you and me? What's the big deal? Why are we even talking about sin so much? I guess the question uh, we could ask is what is actually the big deal with sin? And for this to make any sense, we need to understand uh, what is meant by sin in the Bible and why it is a problem. And our popular culture generally has quite a um, simplistic view of sin, I think. The story is basically that there are arbitrary rules um, that are set in place by a killjoy God, and when we break those rules, we're sinning. Um, and, and sure, you know, God does lovingly instruct us to live in a certain way, um, and it's good for us to trust him in that and follow uh, his commandments because he is a good and perfect father. But the problem of sin itself actually goes deeper than whether or not we follow a certain set of rules. Um, I think living out of step with the way God instructs is actually a symptom of a far deeper issue. And the problem is that while we were created uh, to worship God and to live for his pleasure and glory. We naturally desire to uh, live for ourselves, to lift up ourselves, and to live for our own pleasure and glory. And so left to our own devices, we turn ourselves into gods. 
We don't give the one true God his rightful place in our hearts and in our lives and in our minds. We don't want God to set the bar for what is right and wrong. We want to make those rules for ourselves. But our sense of justice of right and wrong is so subjective, isn't it? I can give you a a simple and perhaps trivial example, but living in Amsterdam, I, of course, cycle around the city quite a lot. Um, But I've also, for my job, had access to a car. And I have, from time to time, made the error of driving into the city center. Um, Those of you who've done that will know that it can be a hectic experience. But basically, when I'm in the car, I get outraged by cyclists. And when I'm on the bike, I get outraged by cars. So, you know, no matter what, what situation I'm in, there is a sense of outrage. And they're wrong, and I'm right. Um, And that's because I'm naturally inclined to make uh, myself the center of my universe. So my sense of right and wrong changes depending on my circumstance. I I am changeable, I am fickle. And that's of course a trivial example, um, but I think it is true generally of our hearts that we desire, we seek to make our own rules for how we want to live our lives and what's right and wrong. And the Apostle Paul talks about our sinful condition uh, in the book of Romans, in his letter to the Romans in chapter 3. He says this, As it is written, and he's quoting and paraphrasing from the Psalms, As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So what he's saying here is that no human being seeks God on his or her own, and that apart from him, we have absolutely no hope, even when we think that we're doing good things. Um, And this is a problem that affects all of us. Later on, Paul says in verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So sin is this deep heart issue of wanting to live uh, life on our own terms and be our own God that affects everyone. And the reason this is a problem is because the Bible says sin leads to death. Romans 5.12 says that death entered into the world through sin. Romans 6.23 also says the wages of sin is death. And it's talking about physical death, but also an eternal spiritual death. And that is because uh, our unimaginably holy God, he rightly condemns sin. And it might be unpleasant to hear, but a holy God must justly judge unrighteousness. Otherwise, he wouldn't be a perfect God. And God, as the creator and ruler of our world, is the only one who has the right to judge it. So in our sin, without without intervention, from God himself, we are spiritually dead. And this is, of course, in itself a bleak situation. But that is why uh, this news that Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God is such good news. So the last part of what John the Baptist says in in verse 29 of John 1 is absolutely uh, life-changing. It turns everything around. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
And this is the purpose of the Lamb, to take away sin from us. And like we read earlier in Hebrews, Christ offers for all time a single sacrifice for sins. And by that single offering is perfecting us, uh, or has perfected us for all time in the eyes of God, and is making us ever more like Jesus. So while we are truly helpless on our own, Romans 3 makes that abundantly clear, because of Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, we are made righteous before God and are brought back to spiritual life. One of the passages I meant before, I, I mentioned before Romans 3.23, which says that uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, is thankfully immediately followed by this, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, and a propitiation is something to appease or make right a wrongdoing, to be received by faith. So this is a free gift only to be received by God's grace. And all that is required to receive it is faith, faith in the saving work of Jesus. And notice as well that it's available to all people. John 1.29 says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I think the point here um, is that this is not just something for the Jewish people who were historically God's people, but this is a free gift of grace that is available to be received by all people through faith. So, <clears throat> have we gone off track here? I said at the beginning I was going to be talking about the results of the incarnation, and I've spent the whole time talking about uh, sin and the Lamb of God, but I haven't gone off track at all, because this is what the incarnation is ultimately about. This is why Christmas is such a joyful event. Um, this, this baby born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago was God coming into our world with the ultimate purpose of bringing us back to him, of restoring our relationship with him and of removing our sin from us. And the incarnation, God coming into our world, was a crucial step in God bringing about um, the ultimate purpose. So you could say that the results of the incarnation are those things that Jesus' sacrifice ultimately achieved. So what is the result of God stepping into our world? Firstly, uh, we are now justified before God. So we have forgiveness of sins and we have righteousness in the eyes of God through Christ despite our own imperfection. And this is totally separate from our deeds. This is something God has given us as a free gift by grace. And because of that, we are no longer subject to God's judgment. Secondly, we are reconciled to God. So that means our relationship with him is restored. Because of our sin, we could not without Jesus have relationship with our perfect God because we have ourselves rejected him. But through Jesus, we're brought back into right relationship with him, reunited with our good and perfect father, existing as we were created to exist. And Romans 8 tells us even that we are adopted into God's family, that we are children of the living God through what Christ has achieved. 
we are being sanctified by God. Uh, so we talked about this before. That means we're being made more and more like Jesus. So those who have faith in Christ are constantly being made more and more to reflect the perfection that, that Christ has earned for us already. And the end point of that uh, is that we will share in Christ's glory. And each of these points really is worth an entire sermon on its own. And I'm kind of going through them very quickly, but hopefully you're catching a glimpse of how glorious and awe-inspiring this is. This is the result of God coming into our world and fulfilling what was ultimately his purpose in, in doing so. And ultimately, in God taking on human flesh and in taking away the sin of the world and reconciling his chosen people back to himself, he is glorified. And that is the overarching chief end of all things, that his name is lifted up and that he is glorified. And that's our chief end as well, as, as human beings, as his creation. Um, it's a really well, there's a really well-known quote by John Piper, originally from his book, Desiring God, um, which kind of puts it quite nicely, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So as we continue to be made more and more like Jesus, our hearts will become so aligned with God that this is in fact our greatest joy and treasure, his, his glory and his name being lifted high. So why would God do this for you? That's quite simple really. It's because God loves you. God made you and he loves you. And J.I. Packer um, summarizes it beautifully in his book, What Did the Cross Achieve? I can't say it better, so I'm just going to read it. He says, Jesus Christ, our Lord, moved by a love that was determined to do everything necessary to save us, endured and exhausted the destructive divine judgment for which we were otherwise inescapably destined and so won for us forgiveness, adoption, and glory. What a savior, hey? And that's who we celebrate at Christmas. That is who we celebrate at Christmas. And I wanna take you right back to the start uh, where I talked about the word behold. And for us to behold, the thing that we behold must be truly worthy of it. Um, and Jesus is the only one who is truly worth beholding. There's truly, uh, there is nothing more magnificent than him and what he has done. He's not just someone to look at, he is someone to behold, to pay attention to, to trust and to know in a very personal way. So Christmas, amidst all the consumerism and chaos, it calls us back to behold him, to see who Jesus really is and to respond to him. So let's behold Jesus this Christmas. Let's give him our undivided attention. Let's respond to him in faith and trust. And if we've responded in faith, let us further respond in adoration and praise and thanksgiving uh, at all that he has done. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you uh, so much for all that has been achieved through Jesus. We thank you that uh, Jesus moved by uh, 
a love for us that was determined to do everything necessary to save us, endured uh, your divine judgment and won for us forgiveness of sins, adoption as your children, and glory with you. And Father, help us to behold Jesus this Christmas. Help us to respond to him, to see him for who he really is, and to be filled with joy and thankfulness at all that he has done. Amen.